So there have been a lot of words today. Um, hopefully, um, the meditations let some of that settle. And I'll offer some more reflections tonight. And, uh, you know, just take in what you can. I don't need to get every last detail or every single part. You just, you just listen, listen from here. And what, what's relevant, what's important will find its way in. And then you just let that stay there. So the whole purpose of this path of practice that the Buddha has offered is to free our hearts from the places they get stuck and suffer. That's the whole point. And what that looks like is feeling at peace feeling at peace with things, and life's messy, you know. All kinds of things happen, life's complicated, relationships are complicated, words are complicated, the heart is complicated. At least it seems that way a lot of the time. But a lot of that can actually be simplified, I think, when we're when we're approaching things with the right understanding and when we're bringing forth the kinds of qualities that, that are encouraged on the path, the wholesome qualities of the heart. And then the suffering that arises, the pain, the distress, the loss, the overwhelm, the grief, confusion, we learn, we learn how to meet it. We learn how to actually meet suffering with wisdom and balance. How to understand what's keeping it going. Where's it coming from? Not the illusion that it's coming from out there which we don't really have control over. That's the mess. But the, the place here, you know, where are we getting stuck? What's the problem? And then we, when we see that, when we actually see where the snag is, then something happens, something releases in the heart, something shifts, something lets go. Ah, oh. Now things might still be messy, but they're not a problem. It doesn't sting. Everything's still happening, but we can allow it all to move through us. can allow ourselves to, to participate fully in life without uh, getting thrown around or without getting, s getting snagged anywhere. And this is joyful, this process, being, being in this experience of change without getting snagged. I mean, it's everything, but it's also joyful. And the Buddha taught a path. He taught a whole way of life, not just a meditation practice. It's a whole gradual training about how we live that, that moves from one step to another, gradually and gradually towards towards this kind of uh, awakening, this kind of release or freedom.
So I want to talk some more tonight about about the role of our speech practice in that path, how it, it can really be an essential foundation and an integral part of the process of liberation. And ultimately it can be a doorway, it can be a doorway to the kind of insight that frees the heart. So how is it a foundation? How is it a foundation for this process? And the foundations of the path center around two things. In my understanding, they center around a relational sensitivity. The fact that life is a relationship. That's a shared experience. That we're here with each other and the rest of life. It's not just, it's not just uh, something we're creating. And this is one of the one of the ironies of meditation practice is how it can become internal. It can become this sort of self-focused or self-obsessed uh, exercise. When the whole the whole point of the teaching is to actually release ourselves from the ways we suffer by being self-centered, by, by just focusing here. There's a relational sensitivity. And the other principle that the, the foundation of the path centers around is a taste for the goal, a taste of freedom. Having a taste of it, oh, that's nice. And the Buddha starts with the taste of freedom. He starts with that, with that taste. And all that is, is those are the teachings on generosity. This is the entryway to the path, the teachings on generosity, which actually contain both. Because <clears throat> what's it like to give? How does it feel to give freely, to help out, to be of service? That feels pretty good. There aren't too many things that feel better than really, really knowing you've, you've contributed, you've, you've helped in a way that was needed. That feels great. Why does it feel so good? It's a taste of freedom. It's a taste of letting go. You gotta let go to give. Can't hold on, right? I wanna give something, I have to let go. And that feels really good, letting go. When you've got a really heavy bag and you put it down, how does it feel? Ah, it's a relief, right? That's the taste of freedom. Oh, you put that down, you don't need to carry that anymore. And the other thing we notice is, gosh, you're, you're here, and you're here, and, and you're here, and, and you matter when we give. So there's this relational sensitivity. And the Buddha says, great, you know, that, how is that? That's good? You like that? Great. Why don't you try this? Try, uh, try not hurting other people. See how that feels. Try cleaning up your ethics. Try not taking things that don't belong to you. Try not uh, sleeping around or cheating or abusing people sexually. Try not, try not lying. You see how that feels. The relational sensitivity, and lo and behold, we discover that, gosh, it doesn't feel so good when I do those things. And that, you know, when I abstain from those things, when I base my actions and my life around this relational sensitivity, wow, that starts to feel uh, pretty nice. And we notice we, we develop a sense of uh, self-worth. I'm a good person, sense of dignity. And there's kind of a subtle pleasure, a joyfulness in that, in that kind of integrity. This is really essential for meditation, to feel that we're, we're good, to feel a connection with that sense of goodness inside.
You know, it means, it means we're okay. It means we're okay with ourselves. You know, you look in the mirror, you feel like, all right, it's okay. You know, I made some mistakes, but I'm trying. I'm pointed in the right direction. That's the point. We're not perfect. None of us are. We all, we all blunder, you know? The point is, what's your intention? Where, where are we going? What are we trying to do? And that's how you look, you wake up in the morning, you can look yourself in the mirror, you know, yeah, I'm doing good, I'm doing the best I can. We need to be able to, to, to look honestly at ourselves in order to sit and meditate. That's what we're doing, we're looking honestly at ourselves. That's a lot easier when there's goodness there, when there's integrity there, when there's that joyfulness of giving. And what does it take? What does it take to maintain sila, to maintain these ethical precepts, as I was talking about yesterday? You gotta let go. You gotta let go a lot, actually. It's a taste. How does it feel to let go? Sometimes in the moment it's not this hard. It can be hard. But then the results are good. <clears throat> And we're learning how to let go of what stands in the way of peace. And learning how to let go of the things that, that torment us inside. Because what drives us to break sila are generally things that uh, we could do without, that aren't so, uh, so happy to live with, the kinds of forces in the mind that propel us to do those kinds of actions. And that's why it's a training. That's why it's an exploration to say, what's it like to hold an intention to live in this way and learn from the moments that I do and that I don't. You, you learn from the moments that we maintain our integrity and how's that feel? And that's strengthening and it's uplifting. And we learn from the moments when we, when we fall short. And oh, that's actually that's disappointing, that's hard. You know, let myself down there and do better next time. So this is the gradual path. So relational sensitivity and a taste, a taste of what it's like to let go. It feels good. And this, whole, this path is holistic. It's, it's all of a piece. So each part contains the others, contains and reflects the other parts. And so this is how speech practice becomes a foundation. Because you can't practice wise speech without strengthening the rest of the path. You can't. It's, it's not possible. You're really practicing right, practicing well. Everything else comes along with it. And that can be said for any of the path factors, any of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. They bring everything else along with it. So this is one window, it's one doorway. <clears throat> How can you work with your speech without working with your thoughts? How can you work with your thoughts without working with your heart? It's all connected. And the Buddha points to three, um, three factors in particular that are necessary to abandon wrong speech, speech that goes in the wrong direction for awakening, and to cultivate wise speech, right speech, that's conducive to freedom of the heart. I mentioned these earlier. I'll just go through them again briefly. One is, is our view, our understanding. This is a wisdom faculty. It means we need to know the difference between what to say and what not to say. We need to have discernment. And so this is one of the things that we just come here and study and contemplate, is what is wrong speech? What is right speech? And then we get some idea of that. We have some, some sense of it inside. Okay, speech that's upright, speech that's true and useful and helpful and kind and timely. Okay. And then we have that understanding now. That's a, that's a kind of wisdom that you have. And then you apply it. So you have to consider you're going to say something, you know? Well, let's see. Is, is this useful to say? Is this the right time to say, to say it? You know, is this coming from a place of kindness inside? What, what am I about here? Where am I coming from? 
The knowing these differences is wisdom, being able to discern, that's wisdom. Now, sometimes we know, most of the time we know, but it still comes out, right? I shouldn't really say this, and we blurt it out. You know, not whatever, I'm not gonna say that, I'm not, we're not gonna bring that up. Next thing you know, you're talking about it. This is where effort comes in. We have to make effort. You need energy. And the Buddha says, this is the second thing that's important for, for, for speech. We actually have to have effort. We have to have the effort to restrain the impulse to say that which is not useful, true, kind, timely. And then we have to put energy into the system. We actually have to call forth the energy to cultivate the other ones because they don't just appear on their own necessarily. So we actually have to cultivate wholesome speech to express the beautiful parts of the heart. Say, hey, thanks. You know, that really, that really meant a lot to me. I really appreciate it. You know, to express the, the beautiful, true things in our heart. You know, I really value, I really value uh, our friendship. That's, that's important to me. It's, it's great to see you. It's always good to see you. You know, this is a good thing. To hold that up, to raise that up, it takes energy. So letting go of the things that we know aren't useful and having the strength to withstand the push, this all takes effort. And then we study the results. We study the results of what happens. What happens when we are able to restrain it? What happens when we do bring forth the beautiful things we want to say? How's that go? And then wisdom grows. Wisdom grows through that investigation. And that's about mindfulness, or it takes mindfulness. And this is the other path factor the Buddha singles out for speech. He says, okay, so you know the difference. You apply energy, effort. But you've got to keep remembering to do it. <laughs> That's mindfulness. You've got to bear it in mind. You have to keep remembering. You keep coming back to it. Keep coming back to it. Paying attention. Paying attention to if we're even speaking. A lot of the times we don't even know we're talking. That's the first, <laughs> That's the first step. You know, am I speaking or listening? What's going on? And then what's coming out? Why am I speaking? What's worth saying? And just practice, you know, questioning and investigating our motivation for speaking. How much of it is about trying to be seen in a certain way, or making a certain kind of impression, or feeling like we can, you know, have a certain self-image we're trying to maintain of ourselves or for someone else, or just habit. So our, our view, our effort, and our mindfulness, these are all important in practicing speech with speech. The rest of the path factors come along, all the factors of the Eightfold Path. Intention, we've talked about intention, learning to cultivate goodwill, compassion, and staying connected to it, a deep sense of caring and non-harming, being on the lookout for ill will, watching that energy that's so insidious, and it shows up in small ways sometimes, yeah, and that irritation that, you know, wanting to snap or just be a little bit harsh. And renunciation, the intention to simplify, you know, that's eh, not worth going into. I can let that one go. Mm -hmm. Bringing forth those intentions. It takes concentration to practice with speech, yeah? How many people are tired today? A lot of words, a lot of effort, a lot of energy to stay, to stay focused, to stay connected, to keep looking, to keep paying attention, to have a steadiness of the mind. And then it, it supports concentration, actually. When we start having some steadiness with our speech, when we're actually choosing our words carefully and not just speaking out of habit, the mind becomes more stable because the energy isn't going out and scattering with all the things that are unnecessary or unhelpful to say. It also depends upon and supports the other ethical factors of the Eightfold Path. If our speech is really wholesome, it becomes difficult to engage in harmful actions. 
It's all connected. And in the same way, you know, if our livelihood is out of alignment with our integrity, this becomes revealed more clearly when we're focused on our speech being upright. You know, if one area is we're really trying to make that clean and upright, the areas that aren't become clearer. So they're all connected. As, as I've kind of been talking about um, in an indirect way, this whole, this whole investigation of how we suffer and, and how, we, how we come out of that, how we see where it's coming from and, and are released from it, and this whole process is based on a primary insight, which is the insight into cause and effect. It's the basis of our practice of ethics and virtue. And it's strengthened by it. The more we practice with ethics, the more that, that understanding of the effects of actions strengthens. And this is the understanding that our actions matter that what we think and what we say and what we do, it has real impacts on ourselves and other people. And that there's, a, there's an ethical dimension to that. That it's not just purely um, cold matter, but that the quality of our intention and our actions bears fruit. If we do something that's connected with a heart of wisdom, of kindness, of understanding, that that bears a fruit that has the same flavor. If we do something that's coming out of confusion or anger or greed, it bears the same flavor. That's why hurtful actions feel so bad when we remember them, because they're tinged with that flavor in the heart. That's why good actions feel so good when we remember them. When you think back on something good you did, some way you helped someone, or the way someone helped you, it's uplifting because it's connected with that mental quality of brightness in the heart. So this understanding of cause and effect, it begins with the dana and sila, ethics, seeing the effects of actions. And then we recognize, you know, whatever I do, that's going to have an effect. It's going to have an effect on myself, on others, on the world, and I have to live out those effects. This is what we chanted this morning, you know, all beings are the owners of their actions and inherit its results. Their future is born from such action, companion to such action, and its results will be their home. Whatever actions we do, for good or for ill, of that we will be the heir. We inherit the results of our actions. So and this is really important to get a handle on. Because we start to, we can, we can steer in our life more when we've got a handle on this cause and effect stuff. You steer in one direction. And that's the brilliance of the teachings is that they start by just saying, how does it feel, how does it feel to give? How does it feel to let go of harming? Oh, that feels really good. Cause and effect's working. Great. And then we start to go in that direction more and more. And we practice with speech in the same way. How does it feel to, to use speech negatively versus positively. And at first, this is about making our lives happier. It's about brightening our minds with integrity. And we start to realize that our speech has an effect on our own well-being, on the well-being of others. And so we, we make an effort to make it clear and clean and beautiful and honest. And when we practice like this, a whole lot of other wholesome qualities get strengthened in the mind. Like the restraint I was talking about, like patience, like kindness, like equanimity, all of these get developed to really practice right speech. So this is how the practice of right speech becomes the foundation of the path. It makes the heart beautiful and bright, and it, it really it strengthens the understanding of cause and effect, which is so essential. Now, for some of us, this may be enough. We might be content to just 
get out of the fray and have a, a slightly happier, more comfortable life with less stress, less conflict. That's a really good thing, you know. But the path doesn't stop there. The path is open. It doesn't stop there because that's not liberation. Because comfort isn't reliable. Because things still change. Loss still happens. People still blame us. You know, we can't control those things. So the path goes further. And this is how, how our speech practice starts to become an integral part of the process of liberation, not just a foundation. <clears throat> so what happens over time, and as we've begun to explore uh, this weekend, is that we see we can't really transform our speech without transforming our thinking that they're connected, that they're part of this vajji sankara I mentioned yesterday, this verbal faculty, this, this one channel of karma, thought and speech, they run together. And, the, and the, our thought and our speech, they feed each other. So if I think in certain ways, it shows up in my speech, right? The more I speak in a certain way, the more I think in that way. So if I harbor negative thoughts, he's always late. She's, she's so disorganized, you know, or, or controlling. They're so controlling. Then those thoughts, that energy is going to shape and influence my words. They might even come out as words. You're so disorganized. All of a sudden I'm blaming someone because I've been thinking in a certain way. Or if I talk a lot one day, I talk all day long, talking, talking, talking. I come home, I feel exhausted. The mind keeps going. Maybe can't sleep. Because the, the speech affects the mind. Well, sometimes we don't know what we think about something until we say it. Right? I need to talk it out with someone. We put the words out there and then it becomes clear. Then we see it. So we, we, we practice with speech. We start to see this connection. And why is this important? And we start to see that the cause and effect relationship that's happening is not just external, it's internal. That what we say and do doesn't just affect things out there, that it actually affects our own mind. Our thoughts and our words are shaping our own heart and mind. Why? Because they're not separate. They function together because we're holistic. We're a whole living system here. And that means you can't mess with one part without affecting the others, for better or for worse. So you think in, the, in negative ways and you speak in negative ways, well, that's going to influence the heart. You change the speech and the thinking, ah, it changes the heart. <clears throat> this is where things start to get really interesting, where our speech practice starts to unlock and reveal some of the ways we get caught and it really starts to give us a foothold into training and eventually freeing our minds. The Buddha understood this and he said, whatever the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become its inclination. This is karma. The more you do something, the more likely you are to do it. The more you think in a certain way, the more you will continue to think in that way. You focus on the um, aspects of your business partner or your spouse that you don't like, that's what you're going to keep seeing. That's what you're going to keep noticing. You start appreciating the other things that are there, then, you, then that transforms the heart as well. Uh, Tan Jeff, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's one of the uh, great translators of our time, along with Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, in talking about his teacher, uh, he says his teacher used to say, if you can't control your mouth, there's no way you can hope to control your mind. There's this connection. That means control is an interesting word, right? What does it take to, to shape? I think he's talking about shaping the mind and shaping our speech. It means you have to be aware of our speech. You have to be able to restrain it. If we can't be aware of our speech and restrain it, how can we be aware of our mind? So we 
use our faculty of speech to practice awareness, to strengthen awareness. And it goes the other way. You know, if we have no way of being aware of and restraining our mind, how can we restrain our speech? So they're like this. They, they, they inform each other. When you work on one, it works on the other. The speech and thought faculty and the heart. When you train one, the other comes along. So some of the stories that run through. The stories that we think, it's your fault. You are so fill in the blank. Controlling, narrow-minded, self-centered. Yeah? Now if I stop there, if I think those thoughts, then that's what I see. And then certain feelings and perceptions in the heart get reinforced. You become that, and then my intentions arise out of that perception that I've created of you. People are so unreliable. Why do I have to do everything myself? You have a conclusion, a belief. We're way up on that ladder. And then that's what we notice. And our tendency with this aspect of the verbal faculty is one of two things. We either buy into it, right, and feed it, and then that hardens reality, it fixes it. Or we, or we try to get away from it. We try to cut off from it. We try to label it as impermanent and not self and hope it'll go away if we're a meditator. This is, this is called uh, unskillful meditation. This is called meditating with confusion. <laughs> labeling, labeling powerful thoughts like this as thinking, thinking, and assuming that that's going to make them go away. That's called aversion. Well, they're impermanent, right? So if I just keep noting it, it'll just it'll go away. That's not right practice. That's not wisdom. Meditation's intelligent. It's a, it's a way of understanding experience. So yeah, you know, these thoughts are impermanent, but they have some basis in reality. They're not coming from, in, from no place. So there's some information there, especially when there's a charge. Some thoughts are just, just blather, you know, there's no real relevance. But these thoughts, they, they carry some energy, yeah? So there's information there that we need to receive, we need to understand. They're telling us something important, and we actually have to receive that information until they can be fully released from consciousness. Otherwise, they keep coming back and knocking until we actually hear them, hear what they're trying to tell us. So instead of buying into them and believing them, or trying to push them away or get away from them, it's actually to just meet them, to actually engage with them, to get messy, to get our hands into what's actually happening. So the wise meditator stops, pauses, centers oneself, and then listens. Now, what if I see those thoughts as a phenomenon arising? Okay, and what if I listen to what they're telling me? What happens? Well, first, just, just through pausing, Mindfulness and bringing mindfulness of our thought and speech, we've, we've curtailed the karma. We've changed the stream, the way the energy's running. So instead of acting on that intention by saying something or doing something out of bitterness or anger, we pause, we investigate. So we're checking it. Maybe we feel some anger. We notice there's some emotion there, and then it becomes a wave of energy in the body. We actually feel it, rather than staying stuck on the story about you, and who you are, and the way you are, and what you did and didn't do. But once we do something, it's out there. I mean, we can't undo it, and it has its effects on ourself, and on another person, and on the world. Once we say something, it's out there, you can't take it back. It has its effects on ourself, on the other person, and on the world. 
But when we think something, it has effects, but it's not out there yet. We can still do something about it. And the same with the heart. When we feel something, when there's an intention that rises up, it hasn't transformed into thoughts and then speech and then action yet. So the speech becomes an inroad into the heart and the mind. So maybe we start to investigate. So there's this thought, you know, you're so narrow-minded, controlling. We pause, we see what we see. Okay, this is, this is, these are words. This is a thought that's happening. What's going on here? So then we start to look at the observation, like you were practicing this afternoon. What's the data? Where am I drawing this judgment from? What actually happened? What was the observation? Well, let's see. I suggested something, and you didn't agree with my idea. You said, uh, you said I don't think that'll work. Okay, that's what happened. And then I start to notice, gosh, I, I felt uh, there's some emotions there. There's frustration. I feel hurt. And there's a feeling tone, it's unpleasant, you know? And I bear with that feeling tone, that unpleasantness. I bear with the energy, the discomfort of that emotion to just know it, to meet it. And now we're really practicing, we're really working with the heart, the energies that are present. We're working with the four foundations of mindfulness. We're working with the five aggregates. It's all happening. Entering through a thought, entering through speech. And then I start to uncover, I stay with that emotion, the feeling, right? It's on the other page, observation, the feeling. I stay with that hurt, hurt, frustrated. What do I need here? What's going on here? What's this about? You know, my teacher says, what's the bit? What's the essence? What's this about? And then we realize, oh, I really wanted to be heard. I don't care if we do that idea or not, but I wanted a sense of at least being valued. And then what happens? Oh, that's what really matters to me. Something shifts a little bit. And now when I understand that, I've gotten the information. And then I'm a little bit more free from that judgment and from the ill will that it was feeding or from the fear that it was feeding. Because I understand what's driving it. I've, 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 I've connected with the energy and felt it. I've met the suffering that's suffering, those kinds of energies. The anger, the frustration, the hurt, that's painful. But we, co we come into it, we actually enter it as the first noble truth to understand suffering, to really know it, to really feel it and go, what's keeping this going? Where is it stuck? Feel it, understand it, come close to it. And then so you, and you see something, oh, that's what this is about. I'm holding on here, I'm really wanting this. So now the attention is no longer out there projecting a world onto you, blaming what's happening for how I'm feeling, but the awareness is here with what's actually happening in our own heart and mind. Now this is important. There are a few things happening here. By using thought, this verbal faculty internally, wisely, I'm shaping the mind differently. I'm starting to free it from its tendency towards anger, towards ill will, towards fault finding, towards, towards fear, by meeting what's happening with awareness. Now, I know this stuff gets pretty heady sometimes, so as I said, just take in what, what makes sense, you know? <clears throat> So the more we do this, the more we apply a consistent mindfulness and interest and presence to our thinking and our speech, over time, the next layer starts to get revealed. So we started as just seeing how speech and thought inform each other, right? And then we, say, and then we realize, oh wait, it's, a forming, it's, it's actually shaping my, mind, my heart and my mind. They're connected. Yeah? And that when you deal with the thoughts and the speech, that the stuff in the heart starts to move, too. That they, they, they shape each other. 
The more we do that, the more we notice that, then the whole personality starts to be revealed. All of our patterns over time, we get familiar with the stories, our favorite channels, all the reruns in our mind. The mind likes to play. The various tunes that make up our individual personalities. Some of them are pleasant, some of them are unpleasant, some of them are neurotic. We just start to get to know them, to see them. Why do I have to do it all? Nobody loves me. Nothing works. You just can't get ahead. It's too hard. I can't do it. And these, these beliefs, these stories, they're there from some experiences that have happened. It's not like they come out of nowhere. But then they get stuck. They get frozen as a view, as a belief. So we start to have some insight into that, into how those, those ideas based on a past experience keep coming back and keep keep appearing and creating our sense of reality. And we work with each one. We start to see it and, okay, what's actually happening? And then we start to look at our speech, what's happening in our speech. We get familiar with the kinds of ways we speak, the angles we take on things, trying to be the center of attention, or the opposite, trying to disappear trying to know it all. We're putting ourselves down. I don't, I don't really know. I don't know anything. I don't know. Or, I'm so relaxed. I don't mind. Well, I'm very diligent. I'm very organized. I really care. Don't you see that? All the self-images, all the airs that we use our speech to, to prop up. We start to see all of that as we investigate our words. Where is it coming from? How maybe we speak really loudly because there's a part of us that's afraid we won't be heard. Or maybe we speak really softly because we're afraid we won't be heard. So if I speak softly and no one hears me, it's, it's fine because I haven't actually really tried to be heard. Maybe we speak softly because we're afraid we will be heard. And what would that be like? We speak quickly or slowly or with this accent or this lilt or this vocabulary or that slang. We start to see the motives behind all of these split-second choices that the mind is making, how all these patterns are continually forming a sense of self in our speech. And then this starts to develop in a couple ways. we start to understand more about our personality and how these are being formed. All, all of this functioning, all of our habitual tendencies of thought and beliefs, and in this, in, in how it's all arising in, in our relationship, in relationships. And there can be a lot, of, a lot of growth, a lot of healing, a lot of maturing and transformation that happens as we work with these personality patterns. This is one, one transformation that happens with speech. And then there's a deeper level that happens. The more we begin to work with those patterns and transform them, we actually start to, we can start to be able to see the nature of the mind, the way it's actually working, how it's always spinning a story about other people, about ourselves, about life, and how the stories themselves are mutable. how through our thinking and our perceptions, we're, we're continually conjuring a whole world. And so there can be a glimpse into the fluidity of it all, how it's not fixed. One moment it looked this way, and then it changes. Our thinking changes, and now it looks that way. It's a small example, each of these, but it, it goes very deep. We're looking into the nature, the very process of how this mind and body is working and interfacing with reality and seeing what are, what are the ones that are, that are keeping us so miserable sometimes or so confused or so caught. What, which ones are those and what's keeping them going? What's at, what's at the bottom of them? To really contact and feel what's there and bear with it until we see that, what is it? What's really there? Oh, 
It's just a feeling. Oh, it's just sadness. Or, oh, that's, that's just fear. Or, oh, that's just really wanting to be loved. That's all. I want to be loved. Hmm. That's okay. I can be with that. Something lets go. There's more space around it. As we, as we see the malleability of all of these thoughts and patterns and perceptions and feelings, how they change when we really meet them with awareness, we start to see that they're, they're not really who we are. None of them are who we are. It's not I, not me, not mine. They're just different phenomena. They're just different experiences that are coming together based on different conditions. You know, based on this thing that happened, and this thing that was said, and this memory, and then whoop, that one comes up. An unpleasant feeling is just an unpleasant feeling. An emotion is just an emotion. It's not, it's not me. It's not mine. But, we, but the trick here is we actually have to feel it. You can't just think that and slap a label on it. That doesn't do it. This, isn't, this is a lived understanding that comes from inside. You have to actually enter the experience. And it's in, it's in being in the experience fully that something is understood about how I keep thinking something about this. I keep believing this rather than just being with it, rather than just allowing it rather than just feeling it, rather than just knowing it. <sighs> and when I just know it, then it's not such a big problem. It's when, it's when there's this, this slight resistance to it, or this slight, or not so slight, becoming it. You know, I'm the one who's feeling this. We call it identifying with it, taking it as real and fixed and true, rather than as just another current in the stream. When they're all stuck together, the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and the perceptions, it seems like reality. It seems very real. This is happening to me and you're the one over there. I'm the one you didn't like or that you did that to. But then we start to take it apart. We use the thought or the speech as a doorway, and we see, okay, there's an event, there's an interpretation, there's a thought, then there's an emotion, there's a feeling tone, there's a deeper need or a longing, there's a, there's a latching on to that. And when we can be with each of those directly in our experience and really feel them, really know them, and the whole thing starts to open up, it stops being so personal that we really have to understand things first. We really have to come close to them and feel them, know them directly before they release. So this perspective of not I, not me, not mine, it's, it's a useful perspective, but it comes from an understanding that we have to actually touch by investigating, by looking closely. by seeing how the patterns of thought and speech keep creating our sense of who we are. And how when we change those, the sense of who we are changes. How the very sense of self is held together with all of the stories, all of the patternings of our thoughts and our speech, fueled by the heart. And how none of them are really mine. They're just flowing along. And it's in seeing that, that the letting go happens, that that taste of freedom of letting go comes to its consummation. We let go of the biggest problem, me. <laughs> we let go. Ah, that feels okay when I'm not the center of everything. So we begin by working with speech to lay a foundation of ethics, of wholesome qualities, 
letting go of the things that lead to wrong speech, cultivating the things that lead to right speech, and seeing how this brightens the mind, it brings joy to the heart, we feel a sense of, of integrity, of self-worth. And this is a, a very essential support for living a meaningful life, for having a, a deep spiritual path. And then we start to develop this insight into the way our thoughts and our words are connected. And then we start to see how that whole, that whole channel of the verbal faculty of thinking and speaking and speaking and thinking, how it shapes the mind. We start to see all the patterns that are, that are, that are running there. And the personality becomes revealed, the various things that, that make up who we are. We start to work with those personality patterns and, and we grow and we mature and we heal. And then in seeing that transformation, seeing how it's mutable, the nature of the mind can be revealed, how it's not fixed, how it keeps changing, how what you, what you, the way you think, the, the way you meet things, it changes, it looks different. Something releases, something happens. Where was it? Was it really here? It's not so solid, it's not so fixed. And the more we understand that, we have these tastes of releasing the heart. The heart releases from its identification, from taking things as being fixed. Taking them as true, as certain, and as who we are. And so in this way, our practice of right speech brings along the rest of the path factors and acts as a window, as a doorway to transform the heart, to uplift the spirit, and to actually open into a deep understanding of the nature of our hearts and minds that can be, that can be freeing, that can be liberating. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. So let's just sit or stand quietly for a moment or so together. Better than a thousand useless words is one word upon which hearing brings peace. <laughs> 